So we have two readings today, from Deuteronomy chapter 17 and from Ephesians chapter 6. Deuteronomy 17, beginning at verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of his laws and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. The priests who are Levites, indeed the whole tribe of Levi, are to have no allotment or inheritance with Israel. They shall live on the offerings made to the Lord by fire, for that is their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. This is the share due to the priests from the people who sacrifice a bull or a sheep, the shoulder, the jowls, and the inner parts. You are to give them the first fruits of your grain, new wine and oil, and the first wool from the shearing of your sheep. For the Lord your God has chosen them and their descendants out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the Lord's name always. If a Levite moves from one of your towns anywhere in Israel where he is living, and comes in all earnestness to the place the Lord will choose, he may minister in the name of the Lord his God, like his fellow Levites who serve there in the presence of the Lord. He is to share equally in their benefits, even though he has received money from the sale of family possessions. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritualist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you will dispossess listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him, for this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire any more, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth 
and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. And then Ephesians 6, starting from verse 1, page 1177. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment of the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. This is God's word. Let me uh, add my welcome to Simon's. It's very good to have you with us if you're a visitor. And if you are, as Simon said, you join us in the middle of a series on the Ten Commandments. So we're uh, here looking at commandment number five, which as it's appeared in our New Testament reading, is honor your mother and father, that it may go well with you and the days of your life may be long on the earth. Well, we'll get there in a few minutes. But I want to begin by asking us a question, which is, are you confident of a bright future? In days to come, what will come your way? What kind of days lie ahead? How will they all turn out? Will there be troubles and hardship? And how will you respond to them? Do you have the kind of bright future that can withstand hardship and disappointment? Or when troubles come, will they bury you? Are you going to make good decisions along the way? Are you going to have a reliable guide that will lead you to a bright future? How confident are you of a bright future? And for some, I know that'll be a hard question this morning, because there are things that seem to threaten a bright future. Dark clouds of uncertainty, illness, anxiety, disappointments. For others, it'll seem like an easy question. So maybe you're uh, in a purple patch at uh, work or in family life or with relationships, and the prospects look good, and you think, yes, I am confident of a bright future. And probably for most of us, it seems like a bit of an odd question, because how can you be confident of a future you cannot control and sure of a future that you cannot know. And yet this morning we come here to look at the fifth commandment as it's unfolded in Deuteronomy 17 and 18. And that commandment is, as our New Testament reading said, the first commandment with a promise, and the promise is of a bright future. It is ultimately a stake in God's new worlds, the world that God is making, remaking, with him at the very center, and he says nothing can take it away if if you come under the right kind of authority, God's appointed authority. The question of whether we have a bright future depends on the authority we're under. Now, if that seems like a, like a strange thing to say, that our bright future depends on authority, well, think of a child. If I put before you a child and I say, tell me about their future. Do they have a bright future? Well, part of your answer would have to do with authority. Who, who are they going to be led by, raised by? Who are they going to listen to? Tell me about their parents. We would answer in terms of authority. 
Or if I said, on the other hand, tell me about a citizen. Do they have a bright future? If you were to ask of an Iraqi citizen at the moment, do they have a bright future? Well, a big part of the answer would be all about authority. What authority are they under? Will the authority of the self-proclaimed caliph, will it be broken or not? We'd have to answer the question of their bright future in terms of authority. And much more so, actually, when we come to the Bible, when we come to the Old Testament law and to the Bible. Because in God's purposes, authorities are people, a bit like we saw with Abby's kids' lot, who, who lead us on the same journey that God leads us on, to the same place, ultimately, that he wants to lead us to, the new heavens and the new earth with him at the center. And the most fundamental authority are parents, which is why the fifth commandment, well, it's all about honoring parents. But the alert amongst you will notice that in Deuteronomy 17 and 18, there was no mention of parents. They're not mentioned once. But that's because mother and father, parents, are they're like the tip of an authority iceberg that includes not just nuclear family authority, but, but national authorities, judges, kings, priests, prophets. And this morning in Deuteronomy 17 and 18, we're considering not the nuclear family, but as it were, the national family. We're going to look at the authority that God points us to in the king and in the priest and in the prophet in Old Testament Israel. And it's very significant for us. And here's the thing to remember, that the promise of a bright future still stands. So at the end of our time this morning, we ought to be able to answer that question. Are we confident of a bright future? Because God says, for a bright future we need, first of all, a certain kind of king. Come with me to verses 14 and 15. God tells us that we need a king who keeps us far from Egypt. Verses 14 and 15. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, you've taken possession of it, you've settled in it, future looks bright, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Verse 15. Don't appoint any king. Not every king will lead you to a bright future. Appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Verse 15, who's the kind of man the Lord God requires? Well, he must be from among your fellow Israelites. Don't place a foreigner over you, one who's not an Israelite. That is, if he's he's going to lead you to a bright future, he's got to know that he mustn't take you back to the dark past. He's got to know the one place that you mustn't go back to is Egypt. Uh, a few few years ago, a debate raged in, uh, in the States over whether or not school children should be allowed to read the book called Night by Elie Wiesel. Some of you might have come across it. It's a, a really vivid portrayal of the Holocaust and the horrors of that. And, and the debate was whether or not this book should be put into the hands of school children. And of course, you'd imagine the arguments that go to and fro. But two words settle that debate every time. And it's the words, never again. Never again. People must read about this and know about it. We can never go back there again. We've got to know about it so it never happens again. And do you see in verse 16, at the end of verse 16, God has spoken and never again. He says, you shall not go that way again. The people of God must not go near Egypt again. The king must not take them near Egypt. And the point is this, that of course it's not the uh, Egypt of today. Um, we've got a number of Egyptians in our congregation. It's not saying that, just to be clear. But, but it's the Egypt um, of the Exodus under Pharaoh, and it's as if God took a photograph of human rule 
at its worst in history, where it was marked by human strength and human wealth, and at the center of it was idolatry. It was rule without God, and it stood for everything God is opposed to. And it also comes to stand in the rest of Bible history, for all God is still opposed to. It's it's the whole system of world governments founded on human strength, human gods, and human wealth. And so in verse 16 and 17, we get this strange trio of horses, many horses, many wives, and much silver and gold. And the problem is, if you go down to Egypt, verse 16, for horses, you come back with more than horses. Horses are like the ancient war machine. It's like a statement that that your kingship, your rule, your nation is all about human strength. And when a king sets himself to flex his royal muscle or to rule for human strength, you know that he's squashing the weak beneath him. It's uh, like some people said, some journalists said about uh, the World Cup that they were covering out there. And they said, the world sees the the prowess and the glitter of the Maracanã, but it's all built on the favelas of Rio. Well, whether or not that's true, human strength like that in Egypt is always built on the breaking backs of the weakest in society. It's the same at the end of verse 17, accumulating silver and gold. Pharaoh could take you on a tour of dazzling buildings in his store cities. But if you asked him who made them, it was on the back-breaking, cruel labor of the Israelites. Like uh, Emperor Bokassa in 2010 in the Central African Republic. You remember him? He had a decadently rich palace. He sat on a throne which was backed by an eagle of gold. But his people starved. And that's always the way when you have human strength and human wealth at the center of your rule. But then in the middle, there's a warning for this king not to accumulate many wives. And again, the problem is not merely that he marries many wives, but that each of them bring their own gods. At the center of Egypt's system and this kind of rule is not a, not a new god, but many gods, many false gods. At the center of this regime is idolatry. Now, if, uh, if we were in any doubt uh, about uh, the relevance of the Egypt back then to our world today, well, we're, um, our doubt was removed earlier in this year. So on the 4th of March, we saw that the the Egypt system of the book of Deuteronomy was alive and well. Before a parliamentary uh, committee meeting, uh, Hei Wu, um, a North Korean exile, in fact she'd escaped from a labor camp in North Korea, came and gave evidence before some parliamentary members and said, well said what uh, we don't see when we look at the war machine of North Korea, we know that's. We know it's choreographed human wealth that it puts on display. But she told of what happens to the weakest in that society. She described the, uh, the horrors of the North Korean labor camps where torture and beatings are routine, where prisoners go hungry. They're forced to eat rats, snakes. They're forced to look for grain and cow dung. And it's, as it were, Hei Wu escaped and took a photograph of that regime. And as she recounted it to uh, members of parliament, Lord Alton said... Um, North Korea is without parallel. There is no parallel. Well, that might be true in modern times, but we can see a parallel in Egypt. And this law says that it's a mercy when a ruler keeps his people away from this kind of system. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, this law about kings, it applies in two ways because it's fulfilled in two ways. And the first way is civil rule, and the second way is Christ's rule. So first of all, civil rule. 
there is a sense in which you could, you could take this law, this picture of a king, and you could put it alongside every human ruler, every nation's ruler, and measure and see how they measure up to this form of kingship. And depending on how they measure up, it gives us reason to praise or to pray. And I think, as we would put alongside the ruling government of the UK that we're under, we have many reasons to pray, or to praise, rather. Let us give thanks for the good of having a ruling government that is in many ways far from this kind of Egypt. doesn't prize wealth and war so highly that it squeezes the weakest in society, doesn't single out Christians for harsh and unjust treatment, doesn't follow Pharaoh in forbidding the true worship of the true gods, for we meet here in safety. Although we, know, we don't just praise, but we'll also pray. So names like uh, Gary McFarlane, Lillian Liddell, Tony Ferrano, they're part of a growing list of people of Christians who have been discriminated against legally because of the outworking of their Christian beliefs. And in those cases, we see a turn, a turn, as it were, towards Egypt, a singling out of God's people, the true people of God, for harsh treatment. And so we'll pray. We won't just praise, but this law will make us pray as we look to our ruling authorities. And then, more urgently, we'll pray with our brothers and sisters in Christ, people around the world who are living under rulers who are very like the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Hey, we went on in March to, uh, to tell of what Christians face. So over between 50 to 70,000 Christians are in the labor work camps. That's about one in four Christians in North Korea in labor work camps. They have to bury Bibles in the ground and forests and woods because they would be imprisoned and tortured if they were found. And so we must pray, pray with them, that that regime which God opposed then and opposes now would be broken. But secondly, the second way this applies is not just in every form of civil rule, but in Christ's rule. In a sense, this is the really solid, clear fulfillment. Because you see that request in Deuteronomy 17 for put a king over us? Well, that request was made in history in the book of 1 Samuel. And God did appoint a king over the people of Israel. And actually, that very throne, that very dynasty, that very kingdom is occupied now. There's someone on it now. There'll be someone on it forever. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's described as having the brightest future of all. He's called the bright morning star. It will never dim. And if you want to be sure and confident fully and forever of having a bright future, you need to come under this king, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you really want to turn your back on slavery to sin and selfishness, because as one writer has put it, a man's will is his own tyrant. We can create Egypt all by ourselves, unable to say yes to what is good and no to what is evil. If we want to come away, turn our backs on that kind of slavery to selfishness and sin, we need to come to this kind of king. We need to come to Jesus Christ. And if we want to be sure that the injustices of this age are going to be righted and we want to be part of the just and merciful rule of Jesus Christ, well, we need to come under his authority. And the Bible tells us that in turning to Jesus Christ, it is turning our backs on all that this Egypt stands for. The idolatry of Egypt, the slavery of it, you turn instead to the true and living God. So if you haven't turned to Jesus Christ, come under his authority. Well, this passage says, turn to him now, come to him today. 
Uh, Well, a little more briefly, let's turn to chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, to see not this time the king that we must come under, but the priest that we must look to, who puts our hope in the Lord alone. Now, this uh, this is a little puzzling, because we're told here that somehow, if you're going to hold on to your true inheritance, if you're going to really grasp the bright future that God promises for the people of God, you need to learn the lesson of the Levites. You need to learn from a people with no inheritance at all. Have a look at chapter 18, verse 1. The priests who are Levites, indeed the whole tribe of Levi, are to have no allotment or inheritance with Israel. They shall live on the offerings made to the Lord by fire, for that is their inheritance. Somehow Israel need to maintain a, a landless tribe in their midst. I mean, they've got the same status. They're full citizens. They're not sojourners or passers through. They're full status citizens, but they've got no inheritance. And verse 1, the Levites are to have no allotment or inheritance with Israel. And we want to ask why. We want to ask why. What do they point to? Well, they're adequately maintained. Verse 3, they get a portion of the sacrifices, the first fruits of grain, new wine and oil, first wool from shearing of the sheep and so on, because their service is a really vital one, verse 5, to stand and minister in the Lord's name. But, But why must the people of God have them in their midst? What lesson did they teach Israel then? What lesson do they teach us now? Well, I want to suggest two applications. The first one is a big general one that the Bible makes when priests like the Levites are mentioned, which is this, that their service really does matter. You always need to have a priest who stands in between you and God. For people who are sinful like you and me, you always need a go-between to represent you in the presence of God. You always need that. And the Bible consistently says that the Levites, their role was fulfilled by one person, Jesus Christ. He is the only priest that we must look to. He is the only priest who is qualified to bring us into the presence of God. As sinful people, we need him as a go-between between us and God. And of course, he also made the sacrifice by his death on the cross. He is the true priest that we need. He is the priest that these Levites point to. But the second application comes from the fact that the Levites, they had no inheritance in Israel. But they did have an inheritance to speak of, not a place but a person. Verse 2 of chapter 18. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. The Lord is their inheritance. Imagine that for a moment, if you would. A father, a father with three children. And the father says that um, on a particular day, I'm going to give each of you presents. I'm going to give you presents. And when the day comes, he gives two of the children a new bike, but he doesn't give the third child a new bike. And he says to the third child, and says it in front of the rest of the family, the rest of the children, he said, you get to spend the day with me. And uh, of course, the other two children think, well, that's a bit of a bum deal for the third child. I've got my bike. That's great. And then the father says, no, I want you to understand that actually to be in this family, the important thing is not having those bikes. Yes, enjoy those gifts. But the heart of this family is about relationship. I'm giving each of you me. That is the best thing in this relationship. That's what I want to point you to. 
And there's a sense in which that would be a hard lesson for those children to learn. And it was a hard lesson for Israel to learn. And yet the Levites were there to teach it to them and to us in a sense. The function of Levi was to say to the whole of Israel that, look, our future ultimately is not really about a land and an inheritance. It is about the Lord. It is not about the produce of the land, the good stuff he gives us, but it is about him. Now, enjoyment of the land isn't forgotten there in that verses 3 and three to 5. But Moses points to a deeper enjoyment. And it is the Lord himself. And so let me ask us, what bright future do you think the Lord is leading to you? Leading you to? So if I ask, are you confident of a bright future, how do you define it? Well, the answer, the answer that this law teaches us is that it's not merely stuff. It's not even the stuff of salvation. It's not even the good gifts that come by being a Christian. It is ultimately the Lord himself. The Levites with no one else but the Lord to enjoy. They point us forward to the fact that at the center of the new heavens and the new earth is the Lord himself. Amy led us in prayer earlier today and said, may we know that the Lord is our lot and our portion. And so we've begun to learn the lesson of the Levites when we're able to begin to say with the psalmist, who have I in heaven besides you? And what do I desire on earth apart from you? Or again, like the psalmist, you have put more joy in my heart than when their grain and new wine abound. We've begun to learn the lesson of the Levites when we can begin to say that. Now, some of us I know in the midst of suffering, well, that's all at the moment we've got to hold on to. And you need to know that that's never going to be taken away from you. That is the future that the Lord is leading you to. And maybe in the midst of comforts, in the midst of all the good gifts you're enjoying, others of us need to know that actually, in the end, the Lord is not leading us to a future all about those gifts, but a future where we enjoy the giver. A future where we enjoy the giver. And so we, we ask, where does our hope in the gifts of God end and our enjoyment of God the giver begin? Well, if we're to uh, learn the lesson of the Levites, we are finally to listen to the prophets, chapter 18, verses 9 to 22, the prophet who speaks a word from the Lord himself. The prophet who speaks from the Lord himself. Now, if the, uh, if the question with kings is, who are you led by? Well, the question with prophets is, who do you listen to? And these verses, verses 9 to 22 of chapter 18, really ask of us the same question. Who do you listen to? Who are you listening to? This is what these turn on. There are people, a whole chorus of people, who claim to have the key to your future and mine, but who in the end will destroy it and will forfeit our bright future. Or will we listen to the God who alone knows the future and leads us to it? In verses 9 to 13, do you see there's a whole chorus of people there who will tell you that they have the key to your future? They're a real motley crew there. Do you see them? Verse 10. People who encourage and force you to sacrifice children. People who practice divination, sorcery, open up the entrails of animals to predict the future. They interpret omens. They engage in witchcraft, cast spells. Mediums, spiritists, those who consult the dead. It's a real motley bunch, aren't they? But actually, they're a really modern bunch. Because the thing that would bring you to the doorstep of these people is something very human indeed. 
they promise you to know the future. They promise a leg up on an uncertain future. They say that actually you can get in the driving seat. You don't have to just sit there passively in the face of all this uncertainty and anxiety. Get your hands on the driving seat. Get in control of the future. And of course it pushes the Lord God aside, the only one who knows the future. But it's tantalizing. And it forces us to ask of ourselves, who defines our bright future for us? What chorus of voices do we listen to when we trust and get reassurance about a bright future? Is it the the boss who, on the way back from the client meeting on the train, says, you're great with the clients. Your future's really bright. Give yourself to us. Do a really good stint with us. And your prospects are excellent. You've got a bright future with us. Please don't let that be the voice that we listen to for our bright future. Or maybe it's the person who says, look, I know you're a Christian and I respect that. But if you could just find a way of sitting loose to that and all that it means, if you could just maybe set it aside for a time, well, you could have the relationship you want. You could pursue the priorities you want. You could have the life you deserve. Well, please don't let that be the voice that you and I listen to for our bright future. Instead, instead, those voices lead us to forfeit our future. Do you see that in verse 12? It's because of these kinds of practices that they're being dispossessed in the lands. Verse 14. It's those who listen, the nations who listen to these people, who'll get dispossessed. They have a future that's cut off. Instead, for the people of God, there's only one voice to listen to. And it's there in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that is Moses, from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. You and I, like the people then, need a prophet like Moses. Now, like Moses doesn't mean uh, with a long patriarchal beard and a staff, but what does it mean? Well, you see in verse 16, he goes on to say, you need a prophet who will stand in between you and God so that you won't be burned up. You won't die when the holy God speaks to you. That's a reference back to chapter 5, verse 16. This is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God nor see this great fire anymore or we will die. Moses was a, the kind of prophet who stood in between the people of God and God. And yet, he brought the very words of God. He stood in God's presence, and he brought reliable words from God. Not his own best thoughts, but God's words. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. God will call him to account because he has put his very words in the mouth of this prophet. This prophet speaks and God speaks. Well, the Bible uh, leads us to understand that the fulfillment of this prophet is ultimately in Jesus Christ. In a sense, every prophet who spoke truly from God was like this prophet. But ultimately, the Bible looked forward to the prophet, the prophet who had stood in the presence of God and yet could speak to us, could somehow stand in between God and us. And the Bible says it is Jesus Christ. He speaks the very words of God himself. And of course, Jesus confirms the, all the words of the Bible, as well as his own words, as the very words of God himself. 
He is the one we must listen to. Listen to him alone. Now, it it goes without saying that um, these words, the words of the Bible, the words of Jesus Christ, will will clash with other voices all the time. They'll, They'll clash all the time with how we use gifts of money, sex, food, family, ambition. They'll clash with really every area of our life. But we're not to misread what a majority says. Truth doesn't necessarily rest with a majority, these verses say. Don't be shaken by the fact that the Bible's words, Jesus' words, look like the minority voice. Instead, remember their authority. He speaks from God himself. Peter says to Jesus, where else would we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And that is exactly what we must echo. So if we listen to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will lead us into this bright future, the new heavens and the new earth with him at the center. And it's a bright future that won't be threatened by and can withstand illness, anxiety, bereavement, sin, disappointment. That uncertainty cannot touch the bright future that he leads us to. So then as we, uh, as we finish this fifth commandment, all about coming under God's appointed authority, well, it attaches a promise, the promise of a bright future with God's forever. And in a sense, this commands all those years ago is a command that meets us today and says, come under the authority of Jesus Christ. He's the king who keeps us far from the rule and the authority of Egypt. He is the priest who points us to our true inheritance. He is the prophet who speaks words from God himself. And as uh, Corinthians says in the New Testament, every promise of God is yes in him. His truthfulness has been proven. And so in him, we can be confident of a bright future. Let's bow our heads for a moment as we pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the gift and the promise of authority. We thank you that the authorities that you appoint, and in particular the Lord Jesus, leads us to the future you would lead us to. And we pray that we might obey this commandment this morning, that we might come under his authority ultimately, and so that we might enter that future, that new heaven and new earth, with you at the center. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.